Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, uh, if you care to, for the purposes of this particular podcast. You may call me Rockmeister McCool. And, uh, yeah, here's how it works. You email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. People ask us questions. People uh, let us know when we screwed something up. People uh, <laughs> want... Yeah, just basically, we're pretty much open, and um, the floor is yours. There's also there's a P.O. box, if anyone's interested. Whitney, what is that? Uh, send us a physical letter, a P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, we do not like to dilly-dally here because this is your show, and we never get to as many letters as we'd really like. So, Whitney, let's jump right in. What's our first letter? Uh, here's a letter from Susan. Hello, Hi, Susan. Susan. Uh, d- dear Ronnie the Bibbs and Hardcastle McCormick. Uh, <laughs> we were uh, discussing on, on our last letters episode, uh, Wizard People, Dear Reader, uh, an audio uh, comedy bit by a comedian named Brad Neely, who made a commentary track for the first Harry Potter film, but staged as if, as if it's a book on tape. Yeah. But it's really uh, funny, but he's, he's watching the film, like the, the events in the book line up with the film, but he's getting a lot of the details wrong. Like a lot of it wrong. Mm. And it's just, it's just funny as hell. Yeah. 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 Uh, dear Ronnie, the bibs and Hardcastle McCormick, uh, when discussing the new version of Dune, you discussed how in many cases, a movie that is a straight up retelling of a novel devolves into a book report and that movies need to interpret novels rather than be faithful to a fault. Challenge accepted. What are some of the best or favorite movies that are almost completely faithful to the Ur text? The gold standard is probably Rosemary's Baby, which as the legend goes, hewed so close to Ira Levin's book because Roman Polanski didn't know how else to adapt a screenplay at the time. Another less problematic version I would give you would be Bang the Drums Slowly, which was written by the author of the original novel, Mark Harris, no relation to the film historian, and is pretty much exactly how the book played out. I look forward to hearing what you come up with. Have a good one, Susan. Uh, You know, that's a great question. And yeah, there are a lot of uh, movie adaptations which are relatively faithful. No movie Mm. can be completely faithful because there's always something going to get out. It might just be a little detail or a character doesn't make the cut, but... You can be very, very faithful. One of my favorite movie adaptations is incredibly faithful. It's Gillian Armstrong's version of uh, Little Women, mm. which I grew up with uh, as a child. Uh, stars uh, Winona Ryder, Christian Bale, Susan Sarandon, Kirsten Dunst, Samantha Mathis, uh, and many more besides Claire Danes. Mm. Uh, and it's just a delight. <laughs> and it helps that that book is exceptionally, you know, it's exceptionally well plotted. It's not like extremely like exciting and full of action, but it's always full of something driving the characters forward. So you really don't need to change anything. Yeah. However, this is also an interesting example because the Greta Gerwig version did change things, and I would argue ended up being a better movie as a result <laughs> because it actually used the text of the film, which is a semi autobiographical. Um, Uh, novel based on the real life of Louisa May Alcott and her family. Uh, And it added some biographical elements of Louisa May Alcott and made it that much stronger, I think. You get to have the actual adaptation in the movie, but you also get to have this sort of novel... uh, Not novel, because that's... (laughs) It's not based on novel. This uh, this intriguing new interpretation of it as well that is 
just as satisfying and infinitely more progressive as progressive today as Little Women was at the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think the original Little Women is delightful and absolutely worth seeing and incredibly faithful to the original text. And that's uh, that's yeah. definitely an example I would use. Uh, a fan has mailed us the novel, which I still haven't read yet, oh. but uh, a really handsome leather-bound uh, novel. Yeah, it's really nice. Thank um, you for that. One of the best film adaptations of one of the best novels would be To Kill a Mockingbird. That, oh, one's, there you go. that one's pretty straightforward in terms of its interpretation. There's not a lot of deviation from the actual source material. No, it's pretty close. Um, it's very good. Um, uh, it, it's not a. Str- th- this might be a little bit hazy, but uh, Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. Mm, I never read uh, the book. Yeah, so I've, I've read a couple of the past Patrick O'Brien books. Uh, Master and Commander was the name of the first book in that series, and The Far Side of the World, I think, was the. Sixth? I probably have that totally wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. lo- look that up, the Patrick O'Brien novels. Uh, okay, um, But uh, that one gets sort of the uh, the raucous spirit of the characters as well as the slavish detail to uh, maritime warships mm. correctly. The film actually bothered to, to do that pretty straightforward. The Far Side of the World is the tenth. It's the tenth book, okay. Yeah, Master Commander was the first, Far Side of the World was the tenth. The tenth. Yeah. I've read uh, I read Master and Commander, I read The Ionian Mission, and mm. uh, I read one other. They're kind of like uh, uh, P.G. Woodhouse. You can never remember which one you read. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's other ones as well. Sometimes the faithfulness is part of the fault. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever uh, seen the movie The Silence of the Lambs, it's very faithful to the book. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, except- it's extremely, very, very much what's on the page. Problem is, the s- stuff that doesn't work about the movie, the uh, really gross attitudes towards uh, trans people, mm-hmm. and um, all of that sort of homophobia that's, like, lined into that movie is in the book as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's that, another that's thing where maybe, where maybe it would have been nice if that had been... I mean, I, it was at a different time, and, like, people were, unfortunately, not as cognizant of... I don't want to make excuses for the sounds of the mm-hmm. lambs. It, there's a lot of things that movie does really, really brilliantly, uh, but there's also a lot of things it has to answer for. Mm. Uh, and I think if it would be adapted today, it would not handle some of the same material the same way. And it would lift out of it pretty easily. I think you just wouldn't have to anyway. Um, so anyway, that's what, that's an example where it's very faithful. It's very celebrated, but to a bit of a fault. Um, but a lot of my favorite adaptations are not that direct. Do you ever actually read the book train spotting? I never read Train Spotting. Yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, a it's not a linear narrative. It's yeah. actually a series of uh, uh, short stories, basically about all the different characters and side characters in this world, and they just had to pick like twenty of those and uh-huh. left out the other forty. So there's all these incredible <laughs> stories in Train Spotting yeah. that didn't make it into the movie. That's that's not. Uh, uh, Wizard of Oz is very unfaithful. Yeah, I was, was going to mention Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, well, the the uh, the Victor Fleming 1939 feature film. Uh, the one everyone knows. The one everyone knows. Yeah, it's not close to the book at all. I I've yet to see something that is actually 100 percent faithful hmm. to the Wizard of Oz, like just a straight adaptation. I'd love to see an animated version of the Wizard of Oz that looks like the W. W. Denslow illustrations from uh, L. Frank Baum's original. Hmm. Uh, printing of it yeah uh just because i like the way those drawings look uh but that doesn't make me love the movie any less because yeah. i know the book really well uh there has oh, oh, there hasn't one. been an instance however where something's real strayed so far from the source material that i was offended i've seen that 
Sometimes I've seen it's you know what, straight, it's, if it strays so far from the source material, you wonder why it's even calling itself an adaptation. Yeah, that's when you got a problem. I I know that was uh, that was an issue I had with Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. where it was a se- first of all it was a sequel and he mm. made up, so I he was playing a little faster and looser with uh, you know the title, but mm-hmm. he was he was mucking around with Lewis Carroll a lot. Um, I would actually. Oh, I, I, thought of, some I thought of a couple of good ones that are faithful, faithful adaptations. Hmm. Um, first one, and I think this one's pretty impractical, is the Rankin Bass adaptation of The Hobbit. Okay, yeah. Every the, single the, noteworthy thing from that book is in that movie. And that movie's almost. Less There's a few things they take out. Really minor. Yeah, they're really minor. Like the bear guy. The bear guy is another. He doesn't. You don't need the bear guy. Like we cut <laughs> out a minor, minor character, yeah. but they didn't change anything. Is my point. Mm. It's all there. Um. So, and that movie, it just flies by. It's super great. It doesn't feel like anything's missing. It doesn't feel too short. Mm. Um, so, you know, pay heed, mm. Peter Jackson. There's, a, there's uh, a, a really straightforward version. Uh, Joe Wright did a, a straightforward version of Anna Karenina, mm. uh, which uh, you can tell that they slashed the budget at the last minute because they, they, they took some of the bigger, th- like there's a horse race that they stage as sort of like this cardboard stage play. Uh, they they the decided minute, because the, a, a clever way around it. Their budget got slashed. So the whole movie is taking place like in like a sound state or like in a stage mm. and everything has got this kind of fakey kind of quality to it. It, the, and that that it's I, I distracting. Under, it's distracting. I understand why they did it, uh, and they got a few things about the book right. Uh, the character of Levin, the one is sort of like going out and working in his fields. They got him right. Mm-hmm. I, I think they cast Vronsky well. I didn't like the Anna in that version. Yeah, uh, I, I think it was um, Kira Knightley played Anna in that one, yes. didn't she? And uh, that get that has all the events from the book. Yeah, it has all of the story beats. It's very faithful. It yeah. just goes from beat to beat, and you know what the story yeah. of Anna Karenina is. The book, it's just by the watching style that film, weird, yeah. the style is weird, and in hitting the beats and pacing it so quickly, didn't really have the same sort of dramatic power that that uh, mm. uh, Tolstoy put into it. Yeah, uh, Casino Royale is incredibly faithful. <laughs> the, the new Casino Royale with Daniel Craig is incredibly faithful to the novel. They added a subplot uh, about. Uh, um, the chief trying to uh, blow up an airplane, uh, which isn't in the book. However, it's kind of just an updated version of a plot point from the book. Mm. So it's basically just, we just took this thing from the book and spiced it up a little to give it a little bit more zazz. But it's actually, other than that, it's very, very faithful. Oh, and they changed the, the game from Baccarat to poker. to poker. But other than that, it's very faithful. More, yeah. more people know poker yeah. now. Oh, you know what? One adaptation that really did actually kind of piss me off was that recent uh, live-action version of Peter Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Because I, I, gr- I grew that, up yeah. reading uh, Beatrix Potter, so you know yeah. that kind of like placid garden setting uh, yeah. was sort of replaced with this kind of slapstick adventure where Domhnall Gleeson is screaming at CGI rabbits and... <laughs> Donald Gleason is just great in that movie because yeah. he's really he's selling it. You know, in that moment, he is furious at an anthropomorphic rabbit. But uh, yeah. the rabbits themselves suck. Wow. And there's a there's a non diegetic uh, cover of "Lens Steal My Sunshine" sung by CGI sparrows. Oh, like they actually sing it. It's a good song. Yeah, yeah. I've just heard it it's at a, every, every ga- a, gas a, station I've stopped it's a, it's at in the a, last it's twenty years. It's a sparrow years. book number. I've every once in a while you would just walk outside and hear the sparrows belting that shit. You know, it's still my sunshine. Hi, sparrows. Let's move on. That's a great question. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a letter from J Lo. Uh, hello, J Lo. 
Dear I... dear Bibbs and oh gosh, it's it's like a like four lines of binary. <laughs> uh, dear. <laughs> Pronounced Rockmeister McCool, I ran that through an ASCII to binary converter. Yes! So that's Rockmeister McCool and binary. It's, and I'm not going to read all the ones and zeros. Ah, that's tempting. Um, all right. I feel like you, uh, this is a Star Trek letter, um, huh. I feel like you brushed past the lesson of 11001001. Is it an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? Uh, real, real fast, uh, one of our podcasts on our Patreon is called mm-hmm. All Our Yesterdays, and we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order, and we just tackled a Next Generation episode with the binary title, uh, which was about the Enterprise going through uh, repairs uh, from a species called the Binars, which are a binary mm-hmm. you know, uh, species, there's two of them. Uh, but there was a lot of weird ethical questions raised about the holodeck in that episode. And in particular, that we singled out that there's this sort of weird vibe of Picard and Riker sort of leering and uh, being weird as they look at a holographic projection of a woman. Mm-hmm. And it just comes off as a weird vibe. Yeah, uh, but let's let's hear this letter because I'm curious what they have to say All about right. it. Um, oh shoot, I lost the letter. Oh no, do 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 a little little bit. I am vamping. Hold, hold if you steal my sunshine. Okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Um, I feel like you brushed past the lesson, uh, which Bibbs commenting on what the binars should have done while forgetting that Picard asked the same question during the episode. A ah. quick refresher. A biocomputer race boards the Enterprise under the guise of fixing the holodeck. Once aboard, the binars fake a crisis, clearing everyone off except for Picard and Riker. It's revealed that their planet's computer... Uh, that the binars rely on for life was threatened by an electromagnetic pulse and needed to be backed up on the Enterprise for survival of their race. Now, both Picard and the ep- and the episode and Bibbs in the uh, in the podcast ask why the binars simply didn't ask for help. With them responding, they could couldn't have risked them saying no. The purpose of the binars uh, to this new Trekkie's interpretation mm. was not about their reliance on technology, but their black and white, all or nothing thought process. There are oh. only two outcomes. Yes, Starfleet agrees and saves the planet, or no, and they die of natural disaster. Yeah. While they seem like a highly evolved species, they've in fact regressed into being un- unable to consider more than two outcomes for any situation. Binars. Yeah. Um, while their decision to steal the Enterprise for their safety is logical to a human, dynamic thought process seems ridiculous. You also failed to mention what happens to the Binars. They freely turn themselves over to the authorities and are escorted off the ship to face trial. What struck me uh, was Picard's seeming lack of compassion in that moment. They could have added a line of Picard saying he'd try to help them avoid punishment or get off with a lighter sentence, whether this is to show a more lawful aspect of Picard's alignment or just a a more just legal system in the future, I am unsure. Mm. Also... Uh, binary 11001001 translates into uh, decimal, our everyday counting system, system as 201. Okay. Nothing too crazy there. Uh, ASCII 201 is the capital E with an accent. Which yeah, we uh, tried to translate the title of the episode. Mentioned in the previous episode. We tried to translate the title of the episode. It turns out there are multiple binary languages, yeah. <laughs> which I was unaware of. So, uh, yeah, there's right. a couple of different interpretations uh, of that. Now that I'm watching along, it's become my most anticipated show. Oh, oh thanks. Thank you. Um, uh, Booleen, end of letter equals true if end of letter sincerely J-Lo. No, not that one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, that is an excellent point. Mm. That is, a, we, we, I thought I had talked about the fact that, because um, at the end of the episode, yeah, uh, Picard does ask the Binars, why didn't you just ask us? And Picard probably would have done it. It's in character. There's probably, there's no particular reason mm. why they couldn't have done that. Um, it would have been in the Federation's best interest because they clearly have friendly relations with this planet. 
um, it does make sense. And I was sort of struggling with this, and I kind of wish the episode had put a bit of a button on that, but that mm. is an excellent point. They're a binary species. They see everything in yes or no. Mm. And so they couldn't risk a no, and they right. couldn't understand the possibility of any sort of nuance. Mm. So that's an excellent point. I actually really like that a lot, and right. that it makes the episode a little better. Yeah, you know? they, they, yeah. They, they think in binary. It was yes yeah. or no for them. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Thank you for that. That's really, that's really insightful, and I appreciate the email. Here is uh, another Star Trek letter. Okay. Um, this comes from Ensign Gerbrandt. <laughs> uh, greetings, Captain Seibel and Commander Bibiani. Oh! <laughs> I, I like that I'll, I'll rank you in this letter. Of course you do. Um, salutations from the USS Music Store where I work on the Lower Decks. Nice. Uh, I listen to your uh, to your log entries while puttering around the shipping dock. Uh <laughs> Please keep I, this metaphor going. <laughs> I, I watched the episodes from the historical tapes from the Prophet Roddenberry in anticipation of reviewing your logs, and I always have com- comments and thoughts. I have held off writing until now because I had a very strange headcanon moment that I wanted to share. I love headcanon. Headcanons are fun. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's uh, when you come up with a theory about how a story works, but there's... It's, it's not, not in it's the not text. Been confirmed in the it, show. It yeah. makes sense, but there's no actual confirmation mm. in the show that it's real. So that's it's like uh, we, we were talking in our last Star Trek episode about how the the character of Counselor Troy we haven't seen her office. Yeah. So we like to think in our head canon that yeah. maybe she has a really nice office somewhere on the yeah, show. Yeah, she's actually being a counselor to people on the ship yeah. because that is mm. what she should be doing at least some of the time. Oh. And uh, just just to, to pause for a minute, this is one of the things I like about Star Trek. I think it encourages headcanon. Yeah. It's it's a, a vivid enough TV show that yeah. your mind begins to wander into like the larger universe. Yeah, and you start asking questions about what else yeah. is going on here. And usually things are put together with enough logic, internal logic, that yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, and you don't yeah. run into just this problem where, oh, that couldn't possibly exist because of this. Mm. And then you realize that no, good. Yeah, by makes, this. makes sense. And even even the bad Star Trek shows have been pretty good about sort of expanding the world that we mm-hmm. live in. Sometimes in really stupid ways with a lot of the more recent shows. Yeah. Um, and one of the frustrating things about watching Star Wars is they haven't been doing that. It's like mm-hmm. we're going to make a brand new film. It's Rogue One. Well, we know that shit. You're not you're not going to a new world. To anyway, be fair, to be fair, there's uh, a lot of ancillary material you're not looking at. Well, there's TV a lot of like books. a they, lot of yeah. They're um, doing a better job of that than I think. Yeah, I haven't been watching the TV yeah. shows, so yeah, I'm not so, even the biggest fan, but they have been doing the work. All right. Um, yeah. I just completed your entry on 11001001, and I had two comments. First of all, to display my credibility as a fellow Trekkie and a title I wear with pride, uh, during the episode where Picard and Riker are deciding where to beam onto the bridge, I found the I found myself yelling at the view screen, just beam one into the conference room and one into the captain's ready room. Oh, that would have been I have clever. submitted a picture from an online technical manual for reference. <laughs> Essentially, the doors to those rooms are on opposite sides of the bridge. That uh, there are tools that allow them to open the doors in emergency situations if they're locked. Just a thought, and my trekness decided to ra- uh, rage for a moment. And yes, there here's a little schematic of the bridge. Of no, the no, Enterprise. no, no, that tracks. That tracks. That's actually that's that's actually quite clever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in uh, the opening shot of the theme song, you can see like the back of the observation deck, and if you look closely, you can see people walking around in there. Yeah, it's, it's fun. a cool little special. Effect. But like in the episode, if you didn't hear uh, or didn't, if you don't remember the episode or you didn't listen to our podcast about it, uh, there's a bit where the binars have locked themselves onto the bridge of the Enterprise, mm. and in order to retake the Enterprise, Picard and Riker, who are the only two uh, crew members left on the ship, uh, they decide to beam onto the bridge. Uh, however, if they beam too close together, and if the binars are violent. They could just be immediately shot, so they decided mm-hmm. to beam on different parts of the bridge. But it turns out there was a cleverer way to do that, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, yeah and you're uh, not wrong. Yeah, and, and, and yes, there's a toilet on the bridge. 
Thank you. Yeah. There I'm it glad. is. Uh, it's a question we've often asked. Uh, it's, it's there. It's it's all the all the all, all the blueprints. Uh, now into the ridiculous headcanon moments. The holodeck it uses energy in order to create real items for users to interact with. We have established that much like the replication technology, it can make things like water or something it can carry out into the real world. Right. So what if the opposite was possible? Can you put some matter, any old matter will do, into the holodeck, and could it convert it into energy to be stored and used later, like we see with with, with replicators doing with leftovers? Mm-hmm. Now, what if Riker did use the holodeck for a more lascivious act and wanted to dispose of his genetic material in a way that would remove suspicion of misappropriated use of Starfleet technology? Couldn't the holodeck turn anything... Well, like, if you have to use the bathroom on the holodeck, what what do you do then? Um, Could could the holodeck turn anything you leave behind into energy and Riker could go off and be ready for his next away mission? Does Quark's power Deep Space Nine? <laughs> oh, God, I want to think about it. Oh, God. Um, I, I actually do think I have an answer for this. But uh, I'll, I'll, anyway, I'll um, as always, greatly appreciate all the work you gentlemen do, and I completely understand if you like not to read this email. In no, no, no. Too late. Uh, I just hope you gentlemen get a chuckle out of my strange brain and where it goes sometimes. Yours, uh, sincerely yours, Enzinger Brand. Look, we, we ask similar questions yeah. all the time. It's fine. And Star Trek invites these questions because they want you to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, and that was a big part of our talk about this episode was the sort of practical and ethical ramifications of the holodeck. Mm. Um, it is my understanding that because the holodeck uses replicator technology and transporter technology, mm. they should be able to do this. I will cite an episode from Deep Space Nine. You can probably remember the title better than I can. There's an episode of Deep Space Nine where many members of the crew are in a transporter accident and in order to keep all of their... Because it takes a lot of memory mm. to keep and in person's entire DNA sequence, every single little detail about their body and all their memories and mm. their soul, like to actually like keep all of that in a computer takes up a lot of space. And they've lost so many people in this transporter room accident that the computer on D space nine can't handle it all. Mm. And it shunts the, uh, the people who are trapped in the, the transporter the, the patterns. Yeah. yeah. It shunts them into the holodeck. Mm. So they're in the holodeck, but if they die in the holodeck, they will die for real. And they're in the middle of like an action adventure storyline, a la like James the, Bond. Like if if they're that character doesn't survive the story, then the, their data will be deleted. Yeah. So yes, it is my understanding that they absolutely can delete genetic material or the, yeah. Mm. So I think that's I think that's a thing. I think that's the thing. And it's another thing where the holodeck is a really fascinating idea for a sci-fi story mm-hmm. of any kind. And Star Trek gets a lot of mileage out of it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ethical ramifications yeah, that they do not touch at all. And I think this is one of them. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. deadly in there. Yeah. It as, could be very easily. As for the idea of uh, using the technology to turn something from matter back into energy, they also do that on... Uh, they, we actually get to see that on camera for the first time in an episode of Voyager, where... Mm-hmm. Um, I think Janeway replicates a book and uh, as a gift and they don't want it. So she puts it like back on this little platform and it it dissipates again. Yeah, that's been done. So yeah, yeah, you you can, you can replicate things. You can dereplicate them. I imagine it's, it's not like a one-to-one ratio. You can't just do that infinitely, but there's, there's a, it takes energy to make the thing. One of my favorite underwritten storylines in Star Trek Mm. was in season one of Voyager where they had a serial killer on the ship played by Brad Dourif. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome idea. And, of course, they killed him right away. <laughs> like, beginning of season two. Mm. Such a waste. But it raises the question of, 
that would have been a cool way to kill someone on a starship. Mm-hmm. Just to like shove their head in a replicator. <laughs> have the replicator just like just dissipate beam up their parts brain. of their brain. Like that would be fucked up. I, there's probably safety protocols, so it's not like you're like, you not well, look, there? If, the holodeck doesn't seem okay, to have any. When when you replicate food, it comes on a plate, it replicates the plate as well. Yeah. You're not gonna eat the plate, so you or maybe it's made of food, I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, you eat it, you put the plate back on the replicator. Yeah. What if you put your the plate on there and you like you leave your hand on the platform? It's not going to dissipate your hand. It's probably going to have a little red light saying, have I can't we ever, do that. Have we, have we ever seen it happen? My point no, is but this, if, this if, ship breaks it seems down like the... a logical design A lot thing. of things seem logical, yeah. and Star Trek does them anyway. <laughs> like, it would seem logical for the holodeck not to create an evil artificial intelligence mm. just because Data wants to be challenged in a mystery. You'd think that wouldn't be something a holodeck could do. Well, but would... it turns out, yeah, they could totally do that. You would think if it happens once, they'd immediately put safety protocols into place so they don't accidentally create life every day. Well, you'd think they would do that anyway. You mm. wouldn't want the art. You wouldn't want artificial intelligence created in the holodeck because it creates an ethical problem mm. and yet <laughs> that was apparently not something they thought of do you remember what, for a while do you remember what happened with uh, with moriarty i do the actually. hologram yeah they, i do because he came back in a second episode and I they do. dealt with him they don't i think they i they, think it's like if memory serves i should like that episode but anyway uh anyway we this is why we have a star trek podcast so we can <laughs> ramble about star trek technology <laughs> Uh, yeah. So thanks for joining us on the Letters episode, where we do it more. And if you're not a member of our Patreon, we've got over 100 episodes of Backlog on our Star Trek. And if you sign up, you get all of them right away. That's yeah. like a lot. That's like a lot. Right. Most of them like, are, are like 40 minutes to an hour long. Right. So like, we're already like 16 episodes into Next Generation at this point, yeah, which so is like super tech heavy. So we're having a lot of discussions like this on our Next Generation podcast. Yeah. Uh, here is another letter, and okay. it's not about Star Trek. All right. uh, we'll find a way to make from, it about Star Trek. It's from RJ. Uh, Dear Bims and Whitney, yesterday marked the end of the London Film Festival. I got to attend for a Ooh. few days and saw it last night in Soho, Titan, and the French Dispatch at press screenings. Oh, cool. My first ever. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and the closing film of the festival was Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, I'm jealous. I haven't yeah, seen that yet. I haven't seen that yet either. Uh, naturally, the response was overwhelmingly positive, but there was a tweet from someone I follow that got me thinking, and I wanted to gauge your perspectives on it, particularly Whitney. Uh, she was expressing frustration about people who wrote off the film saying they just they didn't get it advising that you can't give a film a fair rating without engaging with the text she studied Shakespeare a lot and therefore felt quite strongly on the film itself and had clarified since her frustration was more with blanket statements about not getting it rather than people having opinions on the film without reading the play but it got me thinking and I really wanted your take on this Whitney, you've often said that an adaptation of something, be it a TV show, book, should be able to stand up on its own legs without depending on the source material. This goes back to the letter from earlier. Sure. Um, I also know that both of you have read a fair amount of Shakespeare. Yeah. Do you then believe the same, that a Shakespeare film should work by itself without needing to read the text, or do you think this, his work is far too deep or layered to go in blind? Uh, personally speaking, I have no dog in this race. I studied Shakespeare briefly at school and really didn't care about it back then. Uh, And it's not a subject that I've ever felt compelled to circle back to, though I do think this will potentially damage my enjoyment of films based on his work, particularly this new film, which I will end up seeing as part of the Oscars, I'm sure. Uh, we'd love to hear your uh, what you guys think. Also, William, if you ever apologize on Twitter again for releasing only five podcasts in a week, I will fly to California and force you to give yourself a break. <laughs> okay, fine. I know it feels like you don't do enough, but Jesus Christ, you do. We're all very grateful. Sincerely yours, RJ. Yeah, Thank I, you. I, That's... I went out of town for four days, and you said, I apologize. Whitney's out of town for four days. We only have five podcasts in the hopper. <laughs> in four days. Well... <laughs> Look, I'm I'm a bit of a workaholic, and mm. sometimes I feel like you know, we may have bit off 
Mm -hmm. uh, more than we can consistently chew. And it bothers me that we can't always release things on the schedule that we want to. Yeah. It bothers me. We would like to have cancel too soon be every single week rather than sometimes every other week, which is what we have to do lately. And And, uh, that pisses uh, me off. And we're, we, it bothers me that, you know, sometimes start, we, we like to have a schedule of like a new Patreon episode about Star Trek, Star Trek is every Tuesday. Mm. It bothers me when we have to release it on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Yeah, it bothers uh, me, and sometimes we fall behind on other things. If if we hadn't other things in our lives, if we were just doing this podcast, then yeah. if we were like post college guys who were single and just sort of doing the thing that post college yeah. guys do, we could probably could do that much. Yeah. But we're but not. We're, we're not. We're we're, we're, we're middle aged. We're older men now. Yeah, and we, we have, have other things in our lives, which, families and stuff, which yeah. makes you a more complete human being. But true, uh, and I'm not. Yeah. I don't regret that at all. But sometimes it does make the job a little harder than I'd um, like, and that's annoying. But uh, to to the bard, uh, yes. It, it, Thank you, by the way, for the kind thoughts. By the way, it's nice of you to um, sort of let me off the hook there. But yeah, uh, Shakespeare is—he's one of those authors that sort of leaked into the subconscious of sort of civilization. So yeah. a lot of the stories and the characters and the concepts in Shakespeare are just going to kind of come with us. Yeah. So Romeo you, and Juliet as a concept mm. is very, very familiar, even if you've never read or seen the play. Yeah. And and beyond that, even though Shakespeare borrowed most of his stories from other sources, borrowed is a polite word for steal. Yeah. Uh, it's his he, versions that we know. It's his, it's his versions we know, and uh, you kind of... You don't even necessarily have to know the stories to understand what's going on in Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, the the language is, can be a bit dense at times. I would argue that in terms of but, the, if, if you're being faithful to the mm-hmm. language, no matter how much you try to be accessible to a mainstream audience, there's bound to be something in the language that only mm-hmm. people who really study Shakespeare are mm-hmm. going to fully appreciate because it references something very contemporary yeah. to when it was written yeah. or... Um, Maybe it's a literary illusion that no longer works anymore, or it's an, it's an esoteric definition of a word. Mm. Um, and as a result, people who know more about Shakespeare are always going to have at least a bit of a leg up on a faithful Shakespeare adaptation, at least with to the text, mm. uh, than people who don't. I think that's sort of inescapable. However, I argue, and I know this is a winning question, but I would argue that every Shakespeare play would be better off seen first than mm-hmm. read because it's his plays are very well plotted for the most part they're very exciting and mm-hmm. you can absolutely follow along with what's happening without understanding every single little detail and but nuance if, if it's staged yeah and you can and only and once you n- understand the greater context of everything that's happening mm-hmm. it may, it might intrigue you more and get you more interested in reading the text and understanding the text in greater depth mm-hmm. um and I think a, a lot of people are very threatened by Shakespeare when really he's far more accessible than he often gets credit for. When, when you were in, uh, when you were in like school, like um, elementary school, like not probably elementary school, like middle school or I was, high school, I was getting and, into. I started getting to Shakespeare around age twelve. Well, when so. was the first time Shakespeare was assigned in a class? Like what grade? Like, would that seventh be? grade. Seventh grade. Yeah. When yeah. your teacher said we're about to read, I don't know, Othello, Hamlet, it whatever was, you read, it was Romeo and Juliet. It was Romeo and Juliet. Did you get people in your class going, oh, yeah. Yeah. I had that too. There's this yeah. sort of like, oh no, here it comes. M- meanwhile, I was my, dreading uh, this. My kind of vibe. D- my dad would take me to bookshops often, and because yeah. he wanted to encourage me to read, he would just buy me books. It was really yeah. kind of him. And uh, and one day I said, hey, can I get this complete works of Shakespeare? It's big and thick, and I like it. And, and it's and it's on sale. It's like eight dollars. And he's like, oh yes, I'll get you the complete works of Shakespeare, uh. son. And I started to read The Tempest and. I'm 12 years old. I'm not really getting the temp. It's like there's a monster in it, and and Prospero is really mean. Like that's all I'm really taking from it. Um, yeah. 
but uh, was, but I was really yeah. loving the language of it, just sort I, of the weird poetry. I wish I'd had my, my parents were cool about that, but there's there's always there's always that one shitty memory when you were a kid of someone discouraging you, and it sticks with you. Mm. I remember I was in elementary school, and we went to you know the whole class went to a library. It was like a library mm. close to the school, and we would walk to it, and everyone would get a book, and we'd have to do a book report on it. And I wanted to read David Copperfield. Okay. And the teacher and the rest of the class kind of laughed at me because it was really long and dense and there's mm. no way you can do it. Yeah. And so I didn't read David Copperfield and I still haven't read David Copperfield. Oh. And it actually hurt me. So let me explain something just to everybody. Uh, <laughs> even if a child wants to read something that seems like it's above their reading level, let them try. Yeah, yeah. Let them try, for God's sake. Well, and I know that, that holds true into adulthood as well. Yeah. Don't go into a Shakespeare thinking that it is going to be dense and difficult. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you look at the Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech from Macbeth, mm. there's no weird words in that. Yeah. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. That's not difficult to understand. No, it's a little flowery, yeah, and, but like, all, it's, it's all, pretty straightforward. Yeah. All our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. You know, hey, these, all our yesterdays. It comes up again. We made it about Star Trek! <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where the, the Star Trek episode comes from. from know, that speech. Um, uh, that, that was total coincidence, by the way. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to tie it into Star Trek. Um, so... Uh, how how familiar do you need to be with Star with uh, Shakespeare to Star Trek Shakespeare in the original Klingon? Uh, how familiar do you need to be with Shakespeare in order to uh, go into a Shakespeare adaptation? You have it already. Yeah, you know already. I think. And yeah. um, if, you're, if, if you if it's a good adaptation, you don't need it. Yeah, if and, it's a good adaptation, they'll make it exciting, mm-hmm. even if you don't, even if it's a first Shakespeare thing. Yeah, and and you know? sometimes having a deep familiarity with the play can harm an adaptation. Um, yeah, it makes it, yeah. you can have this sort of rigid idea of how it's supposed to be. Oh, rigid, yeah, or how um, like uh, I saw Joss Whedon's version of Much Ado About Nothing. It's like, oh, come on, man, there's <laughs> so much more in this text that you're not dealing with, and I'm getting frustrated, even though he's telling the story reasonably well. Uh, or that really uh, completely rotten version of Macbeth with Michael Fassbender. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 which yeah. cuts out like 90% of the text and just yeah. focuses on these weird visuals. Yeah. And it's just one tone the entire way yeah, through. And it's, and it's, it's just like this funereal thing in a red cloud. It's this incredibly oversimplified version of Macbeth. I mm-hmm. find that movie very frustrating. But, uh, you know, a lot of people did like that version because they liked the visuals and they could follow the story and they were getting told the emotions of the play through just visuals and not dialogue. Mm. You know, being a Shakespeare dork, I was I wanted more of the dialogue. I liked yeah. to hear that poetry, and so that they didn't have it kind of frustrated me. So, yeah. the, it's it's a two edged sword. Yeah, no, it uh, absolutely is. Um, and and I think yeah, if you see a really good adaptation, they're going to be telling the story and communicating the the uh, the emotions incredibly well. I and think... if you know the text, you're going to be noticing a lot more of the nuances and how they. Are interpreting that. Choice. I'm noticing this a lot. This sort of generalized trepidation mm. to watch an adaptation of something without being familiar with the original, or mm. to I've heard the case. I was uh, talking to someone on Twitter, and they were debating whether like they really liked. We didn't, but who cares? We they really liked Denis Villeneuve's first Dune movie, mm. and they were like, "Oh, I want to I want to find out what happens next. Should I watch the David Lynch version?" Is what they were asking. Oh. And the, the answer to that question is if you want to, basically. It's like, oh, will it spoil the movies? Well, you'll know what happens. Mm. But 
it's just like a 60 year old book at this point you can also look it up on wikipedia if you yeah, really yeah, wanted just to go know. to your library and check like, it out i feel like there's we're, we're like oh i don't want to see it the wrong way or i don't want to get the wrong interpretation my advice to everyone is dive in <laughs> just whatever you're interested in dive in if you don't know where to start you can ask someone if you can't find someone dive in oh. just jump into it give it a try if it doesn't seem right the first time or you're not getting it, try something else in mm-hmm. that canon or in that world or whatever. But just, there's no set specific way to dive into a lot of the stuff in the universe. Yeah. There really isn't. You just, so just, you just open the book and start reading. Open uh, the damn book. You want to know what happens to the rest of Dune? All the books are right there. You can read it right now. And if you liked the movie before and if the movie is any good, uh-huh. it's, all, it's like, imagine, there's two possibilities. You're going to see the movie, get excited, read the books, and then find out that you don't like the adaptation. Well, good news. Now you have the better version of the books. Mm. It's not like, you know, oh, I've ruined the movies. Well, no, the movies might have ruined themselves. That's not really the problem here. You know, it's not like the, you really uh, need the movies if you have the books at that point. So just jump in. Yeah, the, the, maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't, but try it. We've made the mistake of thinking that a film is going to be the ultimate uh, definition of what a literary work is. Uh, when, yeah. when the literary work has been around for a lot longer in most cases. Uh, the movie always follows the book anyway. Yeah. Sometimes the movie becomes more popular than the work, case in point, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Where yeah, people and, know how the Wizard of Oz movie turns out than how the actual book does nowadays. And, and the popular view of certain works of literature are typically of the movie. Uh, that's yeah. That's this, the image that we have. Think about how many people, mm. like when they think of Frankenstein, think of Boris Karloff. Yeah, that's when, very specifically designed for that movie. That's not actually accurate to the to the book. In, in the book, he was like a pale, lanky, long, dark hair and just looked dead. Like didn't yeah. The, didn't the have the, only, the bolts in his neck or anything yeah, like that. that. That's uh, all. That's all James Whale. Yeah. So uh, yeah, same with Dracula. Yeah, yeah exactly. Those are images of those characters. We get we get the images from the movies, but. Uh, the books have been around for a lot longer and there's no reason not to just sort of go to the library and crack it open. Yeah. I, I read an article once. Uh, I was toying with buying uh, James Joyce's Ulysses for a long time and I didn't uh, know how to, it's like, how do I read Ulysses? It's big and dense. Start at page 56. Oh uh, yeah. I was like, is there some secret? Is there something I need to do to prime myself? And I did read one article that says with Ulysses, you just need to read it. You just need to start and go yeah. through. Don't stop for interpretation. Let it wash over you. That's a good approach to anything I found. Uh, there's some things that do require some study. If you're really intrigued, you can stop and get annotations, but for the most part, just start reading, and and you'll get it. It'll it, it'll get under your skin, or it won't, but that's the important thing. Awesome. Uh, oh. Here is a letter from Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister, I'm writing from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Nice. Uh, where our cinematic acclaim to fame is Cool Runnings was shot here. <laughs> hey, that's a great movie. Whitney finally saw that not that finally, long ago. Finally got to see Cool Runnings. Yeah, it was. Totally sweet, uh, yeah, kind of generic, but good sports movie. Very likable uh, film. First of all, I love your podcasts. I think they keep up the spirit of really insightful crim- film criticism alive. Oh, well, thank you. We, thank we, you. We try. Keep up we the do. good work. Now onto my question. There always seems to be some ongoing discourse concerning how filmmaking is a young person's game. Most directors finish their careers with subpar films that are below their normal standards. Mm-hmm. I often wonder how valid this criticism is. Looking back at the careers of some of my favorite directors, I would say a lot of their later films were some of the most interesting and assured pieces they've made. I would even go so far as to say a lot of directors' final films, such as Altman's A Prairie Home Companion, Lubitsch's Clooney Brown, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, and Yasujiro Ozu's An Autumn Afternoon, could stand among their best work. I even think so-called lesser films like Hitchcock's Family Plot Mm -hmm. and Billy Wilder's Buddy Buddy have their moments and are worth discussing. I I quite love Family Plot, actually. 
I haven't seen Buddy Buddy. Um, mm, I know there are it. exceptions to the rule, but I think it's important to note that some directors simply struggle by not having the resources of the clout once granted to them in their younger years. Part of the problem might come down to ageism. Once you grow older, opinions no, your opinions no longer matter, and you're pegged as old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. However, I do not believe being older makes you automatically out of touch or passe. Spielberg, uh, Ridley Scott, and Scorsese, for example, are all in their 70s and make some very interesting films. Uh, I think Spielberg is getting more interesting as he gets older, frankly. In many respects, yes. Yeah. Um, Scorsese too, honestly. Yeah, Scorsese, like he's just, I'm going to do whatever. Um, Anyways, just wondering what what were your thoughts on this topic? Does this argument hold any water? Should directors be put out to pasture once they have peaked? What are some of your favorite final films from great directors? Thanks, thanks, and keep up the great work. Regards from Canada, Jeremy. Yeah, there's this idea, I've heard, um, and and I know you you work for him, and I maybe can't comment on this, but Quentin Tarantino has argued that he wants to like retire relatively young because Mm. he's seen other filmmakers just keep going and their later films aren't as interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a philosophy I've heard a lot of people espouse. In my younger years, maybe I've even espoused it myself. If I was, I was very immature. Um, I think that there, there's a faction. There, there's a there's a factor of that which is the shittiness of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sort of uh, well, you used to be big. What have you done for me lately? And it's harder for talented filmmakers to get decent projects, or even if they can, to get decent budgets or decent yeah. casts for those projects. And sometimes their later films are just struggling even to get off the ground yeah, and that can just whole, be uh, rough in itself there's a whole generation of genre filmmakers that you and i grew up uh, watching yeah. that don't seem to make movies so much anymore as they get yeah. older people like joe dante and mm. john carpenter john yeah. carpenter doesn't care anymore yeah but, john uh, carpenter retired about 10 years ago yeah, from directing um, anyway but like yeah but, joe dante has been struggling end, to make movies for about 20 years now yeah but and uh but john carpenter as well what was his last film the ward that yeah. wasn't that wasn't a big one no, that was like uh, 10 years ago now. Mm. like it was and it, it was good i actually like that movie i like the like movie predictable fine, but it's but... very well made um but like and joe dante the mm. last cup I, I didn't see like the last film he did but the last film i think before it the hole is mm. a really really great horror movie for kids like a great slumber party horror movie mm. like really well made in every way they haven't lost it they just their opportunities have dried up a little bit so that's a factor another factor that i've noticed is um there's this attitude towards filmmakers who have a long career that if they keep following the same sort of idea or notion, people get a little tired of it. Like, I've noticed people say, like, oh, Terrence Malick yeah. has just been making the same movie over and over again since The Thin Red Line. And to an extent, yeah, he's been telling stories in similar styles. Exploring been, similar themes. Yeah. yeah. But this is the kind of thing that when they're dead, we celebrate. We say, like, oh, look at how this, look at this fantastic body of work. Yeah, not everything is equally good. I think Nine mm-hmm. of Cups sucks, but like, <laughs> it's these are movies that are about big ideas, and he tried to explore it from multiple angles and tried to sort of refine a new cinematic language. And how lucky are we that Terrence Malick was able to create this really fascinating body of work? And when you watch them all together, you create, you get this wonderful sense of his being. Mm. But if you're only looking at it one at a time, you say to yourself, oh, To the Wonder is a little bit like Tree of Life, so let's disregard that. That's not fair. <laughs> the other thing I notice is that sometimes uh, when filmmakers Oh, get no, a, a movie like the Tree of Life. Oh, what a tragedy, right? Like, oh, no. This, is, this, is, this was a problem that people had. Like, a lot of people wrote off Casino when it came out in the 90s because it was, like, two films after Goodfellas, mm. and it was kind of similar in some respects to Goodfellas. They have some similarities. They're very different films. And I gotta tell you something, I think Goodfellas is still arguably the better film. Mm -hmm. If I was given an opportunity to watch one or the other, I'd probably watch Casino again. Casino is electric. (laughs) 
Zena's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing I think is that sometimes when, especially filmmakers are allowed to get old, like, you know, they're actually still allowed to work like into their mm. twilight years and they don't like retire when they're 60 they're like working when they're 70 or 80. They often gravitate towards films that are interesting to people who are older. Mm-hmm. And as a result, young people who are too often considered like the primary arbiters of taste, not that their opinions mm. are invalid, but like they're just experiencing one part of life. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s might respond to these movies differently than people in their 20s do. Right. And as a result, these movies are sometimes disregarded until people get older and start approaching them from the perspective of more mature people. What what I find really curious is um, senior citizens are a huge part of box office. Yes, they are. And films uh, about and for an older audience tend to make a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Something like The Most Exotic Marigold Hotel. That's a hit movie. Best Exotic, yeah. Uh, Excuse me, Best Exotic. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's yet, a good movie. That's a, I like that movie. Mm. That's a very sweet film. But everybody refers to that. Oh, they dismiss it. Oh, that's a grandpa movie. And because so much of the film market is geared toward a young audience, the studios believe that they can only hire young directors who cater directly to a young audience. So yeah. an older director making a film for like with an older audience in mind, or at least a co- concepts that would be grasped more easily by an older audience are dismissed uh, by a lot of, not just audiences, but also critics who aren't as old, uh, who don't have that perspective. And I think that's an incredibly valuable perspective. Uh, You know old people in your life. Yes, you do. And they're going to, this, you know, getting sort of their stories and their perspective is incredibly important. Uh, It's because you're going to be learning about yourself eventually. Yeah, I worry that, again, there's always, ever since especially like the mid-20th century, Mm. when advertising started keying into youth, not only as a demographic, but as some kind of ideal. Yeah. um, We started devaluing age and wisdom Mm. and made it more about, even if you're old, what you really want to be is young, right? Well, not necessarily. There's a lot to be said about being old. There's a lot to be said about, you know, learning more about yourself and understanding more about the world and your place in it and being comfortable with that rather than having this, you know, need to go, go, go all the time. You know, like it's these are different vibes and they're and they're very, very much valid. But I feel like there's a there's a problem we're going to run into in this industry where we spend so much time catering to this demographic, this perceived demographic of like people in their teens and 20s and maybe early 30s. And making movies for them. Mm. Movies about things that young people can appreciate, even if you don't have a lot of worldly experience. Things like superheroes. Mm. Um, I'm not decrying the genre. It's a perfectly good genre, but it tends to skew a younger demographic, is my point. Um, And there's always an influx of people coming into that demographic. People are always being born, growing up, Mm. whatever. And that's one of the reasons why critics often have to sort of reiterate things. Because, oh, there's a whole new generation now that's only just getting into things. I wrote about this. But yeah, you wrote about it eight years ago. Do it again. Exactly. Here's the the thing we don't talk about as much, though. The people who were in their 20s 20 years ago are now in their 40s. Mm. And only getting older. And we created a system that caters to them where they're engaged in the media maybe more so than other generations have been and still really interested in movies and stuff and yeah i'm sure they still like a lot of the old movies the superhero movies action movies Mm. horror movies whatever 
but they're also human beings who are having more human experience and they're probably interested in movies that they didn't used to be interested in because they speak to them more profoundly and we are not creating a media system that speaks to that we are we are just perpetuating the media systems that focus on movies for people in their 20s and we're not creating a system like all of these like YouTube video channels and everything that are all about stuff that people in their 20s like are fine, but I guarantee you there's a big market for people who are in their 40s and 50s now who've grown up with all those movies who are also interested in more what we would consider art house cinema well, or at what, the very least more quote unquote serious cinema that talk about uh, more mature yeah. issues. What kind of frustrates me? Uh, my uh, my wife listens to a podcast called This Had Oscar Buzz. Oh, that's a great podcast. And, uh, yeah, and it yeah, talks about sort of prestige pictures that uh, studios put out at the end of the year that people were talking about an award season but ultimately didn't get a lot of award nominations and those are all pretty ambitious films with a lot of adult themes those are grown-up movies and they're all quite good because they're dealing with some complex adult things or at least trying in an earnest kind of way and yet at least the circles i run in it we aren't canonizing those types of movies these sorts of film like to pick one randomly like how about the soloist Movie, yeah. Really? The Soloist? Well, I, I don't know. Or yeah, movie, uh, right. Snow Falling on Cedars, whatever yeah. you got. Something, yeah, yeah. So, so, something that's just sort of well-intentioned. A, a little bit quieter, yeah. well-intentioned, more mature. Yeah, okay. uh, those are those two are like kind of mediocre films, but yeah. I've seen just as mediocre or even worse movies get brazenly canonized and given these 4K digital uh, Blu-ray releases for yeah. collectors because they appeal to sort of... Uh, a teenage sensibility. Yeah. A lot of like really awful slasher movies get really, really a Tiffany releases on home video. That's what, that's another one where Mm. I would argue that that's a matter of sort of adjusting expectations. What a slasher Mm. movie is trying to achieve is maybe Mm. a little bit easier to achieve than something who's trying to be profound. I suppose so, So but therefore it's a great slasher and being a great slasher might arguably be easier than being a great profound work Mm. of human intimate drama. Yeah. Uh, (sighs) It, it's it's frustrating though that uh, the men of my generation have chosen to what they've chosen to canonize, yeah. and what you know when and I've I've talked about this before the kind of the great films of the 1980s. You ask a, a white guy my age is going to say Ghostbusters and Back to the Future and those those are fine films, those are very good movies, but they're not talking about Chariots of Fire or Out of Africa or mm-hmm. uh, you know Fitzcarraldo or. or, or um, yeah, other films of the nineteen eighties. Yeah, films of yeah. the nineteen eighties that actually are are dealing that were for a grown up audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, L'Argent is one of the best films of the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Who brings that up? Besides not, me, not, not, that's not, a Robert Bresson film. Not as many um, as you might think. Mm. But how many people are talking about Ghostbusters still? Everybody's still talking about yeah, freaking Ghostbusters. You can't fucking escape it, can you? It's like go- Ghostbusters yeah. is overexposed at this point. I, I don't even want to sit and watch the original Ghostbusters anymore. If it's a good yeah. film, but I love that movie. We've seen kinda, it many times. Kind of sick of it now. Yeah. And uh, this this idea that we're constantly catering to what we loved when we were young, or something that could be enjoyed when we were young is a big part of this conversation and yeah. uh, sort of the way those things can be easily marketed and redistributed and remade because they're the kinds of st- like limited stories that can be uh, sequelized very easily. There's a line, I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing, mm. that Alonzo Duralde, the co-host of uh, Linoleum Knife and the head critic mm. for The Rap, uh, has said 
on multiple occasions, which is, uh, is it really a good movie or did you just see it when you were seven? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I know I'm getting the line slightly wrong, but it's a good point regardless. Uh, we got a little into the weeds there, uh, but let, that's a great question. Let's move on. I think we got time okay. for one or two more. Uh, here's a letter from Eric. Hello, Eric. Uh, hmm. Gentlemen, I have a critique. Because as a wise man once said, everyone's a critic. Well, more of a suggestion. Uh, I noticed in your Patreon episodes, you do the standard introduction of yourselves uh, and of your bona fides at the start, and then the Patreon thank you at the end. It occurs to me, since the audience is already paying for the show and therefore familiar with who you are, it might be less uh, important to establish who you are. And instead of the move, thank you for being a move, thank you for being a patron to the start of the show, as opposed to the end, so nobody misses it. Oh, that's actually a good point. I should mm, do that. Anyway. Um, This only came to my mind as you both go out of your way to be polite and gracious and are always very sincere about how much you appreciate your audience of supporters. Of course, I realize it might be difficult to switch up the rhythm of how often you open and close your multiple shows, so I understand if you choose not to take this change. We're just in a rhythm, pretty much. A little Uh, bit. Sometimes we just... I've I've lost track of how many times we've started to record a podcast and I've accidentally called it the wrong name. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, which one are we doing again? Right, okay. It's like like the stepfather. Who am I here? Um, (laughs) On another topic, for some reason, uh, the other day when Bibbs was apologizing for saying, I digress too much, I had an image for a t-shirt pop into my mind of a manga version of Bibbs saying, I digress. With the help of an, art, an artist on Fiverr, we whipped up such an attached what? image. Feel free to add it to the T Public Store with my full permission. Oh, that's so uh, kind. But sorry, me... Eric can't come to the phone right now. Please leave a message. Sincerely, Eric. Can I see uh, this? Uh, uh, yeah, let me. Uh, that's amazing. Let me pull it up here. Um, oh gosh, it's Whitney uh, and Technology is it's, not a good no, mix. It's, it's a zip file. I don't know from <laughs> zip files. <laughs> Open with sure. There you are. There's a, a manga version of oh you. My God, that's so cute. <laughs> that is so cute. I yeah. love this. <laughs> oh my God! Thank you. Oh, I love this. I, oh, I'm. Ooh. I, I know how to put things on the T Public Store, so I'll see yeah. what I can do about you, getting you, that I, on a shirt. Send this to me. I want to use this as like my uh, my Twitter uh, thing for a little yeah, while. I'll, That'd be amazing. For that email. Thank you. you so much. That's that's lovely. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, that that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Um. My the regarding why we introduce ourselves in front of every Patreon thing is because we want to be welcoming to new patrons. Mm-hmm. That's then that's basically it. You have to assume that every episode could be someone's first of something, and if they're relatively new, maybe they don't really remember whose voice is which. I know when I've started listening to new podcasts, I sometimes get confused as to which host is which, unless yeah. their voices are very different. And I know Whitney and I. Mm-hmm. We have slightly different tonalities, but it's not like we have different accents or anything. No, like we're, we're, we're kind of similar. So I just want to make sure everyone's clear at the outset in case you're only half paying attention or you're only just starting mm-hmm. to notice these things. Just who's who. So I, I think we'll keep doing that just out of formality. But um, that's an excellent point about thanking the patrons up front, and we should probably do that. So Whitney, mm-hmm. help me remember that, okay? Okay. Yeah, because yes. that's a good point. We wouldn't be here without our patrons, and... We realize not everyone can afford to be a patron, and some people have have been a patron for a little while and then left for financial reasons mm. and then come back, and that that's fine too. And sometimes people just leave because they're doing different things now, and that's fine mm. too. And we never want to take we, we never want to take anyone for granted. Yeah. Uh, but we understand that committing to being a patron to anything for any meaningful length of time, or even just for a month is a financial commitment that not everybody can afford and we're incredibly grateful and we always want to say thank you to all of our patrons who keep this show possible because without you it wouldn't be Mm. we're fortunate enough now that we're starting to have some commercials and that's cool but that's not 
paying the rent. That's just help, <laughs> that might help a little bit, yeah, you know. Like it's it's not like we're it's not like we're rich here. Although there was a weird situation where I was I was uh, listening to just to, just quality checking a podcast we put up, mm-hmm. and there was an ad for Halloween Kills in front of it, <laughs> and that felt so official to me. Like you didn't even like it, but like I was like, wow, that feels that's a real commercial. Uh, and and that, that's a, a maybe a little bit of a conflict, you know. Oh. Go see Halloween Kills. Now here's a show about how you shouldn't see Halloween Kills. I mean, I, I think Siskel and Ebert used to have like you know movie commercials yeah, right. in their. I think we're not in control of that, and we're not well, in charge of that. Also, I've, I think uh, one of the primary functions of criticism is to cut through the advertising mm-hmm. and say what the film itself is. Uh, yeah. Ignore the the era of, you know, sort of yeah. the, the haze of hype around a movie yeah. cut through all of that and actually yeah. get to what's at the center of all of that. And it again, doesn't really if, matter how it was advertised at some point. And also it's worth noting that the commercials that play at the beginning, right now we're only putting commercials at the beginning and the end of our podcast because we don't want to be obtrusive. We don't want to like mm. uh, interrupt the flow of the conversation. Uh, but uh, we don't actually control what commercials are going up there. Uh, so that's just kind of it, it's not random because they're going off of like you know what our audience is or what type of podcast we have uh, but again I do want to reiterate if you ever hear a commercial for something in front of one of our podcasts that is something that you think we would not support mm. uh, please let us know because we do I do believe we have veto power over that kind of stuff and I would hate to think that there was like I don't know I'm I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message kind of bullshit yeah, like man. I would that would haunt me to my core so please let us know if anything like that happens but i don't think it will so um but yeah that's that's how that works but i digress damn it i just did it (laughs) i just did it i just did it i wasn't even trying all right moving on i think we have uh, let's do one more one more letter okay let me me get the letters back up here oh i'm sorry we already Uh, done here's uh here's a letter from james hello james okay excuse me uh Oh dear, dear Whitneyam Boldiani, sort of like portmanteau of both of our names. Got it. Uh, Listening to the Iron List episode on the best horror comedies, I particularly enjoyed your segment on Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, a Bibbs entry, if I recall correctly. Specifically, I wanted to offer my theory on Happy Death Day to You's reception. Oh, okay. Because it wasn't as big a hit as the first one. No, it bummed me out. I really like that movie, too. So, yeah, what, um, what you got? Bibbs correctly noted that the sequel is underrated and generally considered a weaker entry, and I think I know what it, why that is. Happy Death Day to You would have been better received if it was the third entry in the franchise. Mm. Not saying it should have been the third, but I think people would have liked it more. Happy Death Day to You rode the coattails of its popular predecessor, and production was greenlit only one month after the release of the first movie. Right. When you get a sequel so soon, audiences want something that's largely the same with an appropriate amount of variation. I can't think of another canonical first horror sequel that varies the formula as much as Happy Death Day to you. Mind you, uh, Highlander 2, maybe. Um, that's not you, a horror movie, though. That's true. Mind you, I loved it for this, but it seems people were uh, not quite ready that for that much of a shift. Mm-hmm. From what I can tell, fans of franchises are a lot more willing to accept massive variation by the Third movie. The strongest example is Army of Darkness, but you can even bring in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. While contemporaneous audiences were uh, not too hot on the third Halloween film, it has since been reevaluated and found a modern audience. Something I'm not too convinced will happen to Happy Death Day to you. Uh, in any case, I wondered what you thought of the idea and if you had any other examples where a uh, film series took a major left turn as its second film and if it was well received or not. Thanks as always, James. Uh, that's a good point. Um, and I think that's part of it i do think that uh, happy death day to you kind of minimized the slasher movie element mm. of the original film and made it more about just time travel 
which I think is really clever, and I think that movie works really, really well. But um, yeah, if you if that was what you glommed onto was the horror elements, then you could feel a little betrayed. Um, one, I think one of the classic examples of this is uh, Friday the Thirteenth, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, um, Nightmare on Elm Street Two, Freddy's Revenge, mm. uh, which the original film, and this is only the second film in the series, but the original film was about Freddy Krueger haunting a whole bunch of teenagers and killing them in their dreams with their phobias and shit. Uh, and then the second one was all about Freddy haunting one guy and trying to take over his body. And there's a part where Freddy actually manifests in the real world. And I know a lot of people complain that, oh, they broke the rules. And I'm like, there's only one movie. The rules haven't been clearly established yet. I think hmm. two was simply firmly establishing how far the rules go. And I think as time has been exceptionally kind to that movie. No. Uh, that movie is actually way more sinister and way more in depth well, it's got psychologically. A lot, it's got a lot more. It's the. Uh, forgive me for saying this, apart from the original and the seventh, yeah. I think it's the scariest of the sequels. I do too. I think uh, it gets into I think it gets into the subconscious better. Yeah. Which is weird because that's literally all Freddy Krueger is. But Nightmare uh, sorry, Nightmare on Street three through six. Not a lot of psychological complexity to those. They're well, it's, pretty, it's they're like pretty surfacey. Somebody like a character is afraid of bugs, and in her nightmare, she turns into a bug. Like yeah. that's as deep as it goes. Yeah, and that's that, that's nothing wrong with yeah. that, but it's not. It's definitely not as insidious as this storyline can get. And so I think the second film made it pushed that element rather than pushing the slasher formula bit. Mm. And so people, generally speaking, for many, many years were not fans of it. And then they started coming back around when Dream Warrior came around and sort of recodified the formula a little bit more. Um, so that's definitely one. Um, mm. I'm trying to think of if there are any other like major film franchises mm. that took a hard left like in a, the, second, the second one. Especially when it, it, it should get um, a little easier when you take out horror movies. But. Uh, the original Gremlins is mm. sort of cartoonish, but that's like a... It's mm -hmm. sort of a send-up of Christmas movies because it's set yeah. at Christmas time and what would happen if monsters were loose at Christmas time? Yeah. And they get to sort of like shred up Santa Claus and set things on fire. Uh, and the second one is... It's just a cartoon at that point. Yeah. It it almost like tries to undo any any sort of myth that the first one set up. It is just a complete joke. Yeah. And I appreciate that about Gremlins 2. I think that's kind of the brilliance of Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2 is one of the best films of the 90s. I, I, I don't stand disagree. by it. <laughs> no, it's great. And I think it, and you could say the same about Bride of Frankenstein as well, a movie mm. from which Gremlins 2 takes a lot of its cues. Yeah. I think yeah. it's fair to say. Um I oh I just oh Aliens. Oh, there you go. Aliens each turned, each alien movie is kind of a different genre. Yeah, but like, and, and this is one that people embraced. Uh, mm. But uh, the original Alien was very much just a straight up horror movie in space, a bunch of helpless people trapped on a ship with a monster, and then they decided to turn it into an action movie Vietnam War allegory, mm. uh, and it works. It's a excellent movie but i know you're in particular not a fan of it because you thought the I, I original like, was a better tone i i like I, I think just just maybe my personal taste i like dread and death more than action yeah. schlock and some people like action schlock better and that's fine that's yeah. that's your taste but yeah i, I vastly prefer alien over I, I don't disagree uh, uh i i happen to like both but i think yeah. that's a perfectly valid like interpretation yeah mm. um a aliens might be my fourth favorite film in that series that's a bold. Uh, that's yeah. a bold thing. Um, <laughs> Shock treatment was a really. It's still a musical, and it's still got Brad mm. and Janet. But otherwise, it's very different from Rocky Horror. Mm. Um, it has a much smaller cult, although it still has a cult. Mm. People do like it. I think the soundtrack is damn near impeccable in Shock Treatment. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of other ones that were just like 
completely switched everything around or completely switched genres. Hmm. Yeah, like, uh, oh, I guess, didn't switch genres, but I know uh, the the premise of uh, the second Blair Witch film, and that second oh, Blair yeah. Witch film was really awful. Well, that, but, that's, uh, that changed on because it wasn't a found footage film anymore. It wasn't a found footage film anymore. It was still a horror movie, though, and it was still about yeah. the same things, but in the universe of the second Blair Witch film, it took place in essentially the real world where the Blair Witch Project was a film, and they were people reacting to the Blair Witch Project as a film in the real world yeah. in the the universe of Blair Witch 2. Uh, yeah, that that kind of switched things up a little bit. Um, I, yeah, I'm try- having trouble thinking of things that really did that sort of effectively. Yeah, and uh, we're a bit and, on the and, spot here. We didn't plan this out ahead of time. Yeah, I know a lot of these films are varyingly uh, accepted and rejected by audiences. Uh, people we get who- to Bernie's too. <laughs> then they, they had magic. Up. They had voodoo magic, and now mm. Bernie. Whenever music is playing, the corpse of Bernie. Walks dancing, towards treasure. Yeah. Dances. He dances towards treasure. Mm. You know. So they have to. Bring, like a thing. They have to bring him back to life so he can. The corpse can lead them to treasure. Yeah. And the corpse, by the way, it's been a really long time. Corpse hasn't decomposed at all. Not even slightly. The flesh mm. hasn't even gotten a little saggy on that thing. Just. Just it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Such a weird fucking film. <laughs> um. But yeah, I'm but sure, yeah, I'm sure yeah, if we spend yeah, some more time with this, we can come up with a lot more. And um, the but the, the sort of the the sequelization that some a that something warrants and deserves a sequel is very modern thinking. Yeah. You know, the the idea that we can plan out an entire series of films is a relatively recent construct in Hollywood uh, that started. I would say with Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter in in 2001. Although there's probably antecedents. There's antecedents um, to that, but it didn't become popularized and like the norm until like the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and then of course there was. And the, the the Avengers series kind of broke it open. It's like, like, well, like we're going to make an Avengers movie, but we're going to do four films first. Like, they would occasionally plan to do mm. two at a time. Mm. Like, they shot Superman the movie and a big chunk of Superman 2 together, but then when they, the budget started getting exploding, mm. they decided to wait and finish Superman 2 later, which is why Donner got replaced by Richard Lester. Yeah. Um, so I, that happened. The, the Donner cut's better, but I like them both. Yeah, uh, they're both... They're, yeah. I'm not the biggest Superman mm. 2 fan, but I do think the Donner cut's mm. better. But uh, the the pattern had been well established for many years. You make a, an original, it's a hit. You make a sequel uh, that is really close to the original. Uh, yeah, try, the to, try, try not to alienate people. Oh, you know, it. another one. Another one that's really different is The Exorcist too. But um, oh, there you go. Which, which I hate and was not yeah. a big hit. But uh, Terminator 2 is interesting is, because structurally it's the exact same movie, mm. but all the details are different. The details are different, the, the and it's, roles it's are a lot by more. People. It's now a, Michael a Bean blur- is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a larger, you know. slicker production as well. Yeah, so, so it that's, feels yeah. less like a first. The the Terminator, the first Terminator movie, is basically a sci-fi slasher movie. Mm. Uh, a, it's about a, an a unstoppable killer. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, the T two is much bigger, much more action oriented, mm. but structurally, it's incredibly similar to the point where many of the scenes have the exact same dialogue. Yeah. Um. So that's one where they kind of get to mm. have their cake and eat it too. Um, but that one was embraced. Yeah, that was an R-rated horror movie that didn't make a big impact in theaters. It was only really found its audience on home video. And then when Terminator Two came out, it was the biggest movie ever for a while. Yeah, 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 a huge, huge hit. Yeah, and and awesome, really good movie. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that's that's all we got at the top of our heads. Oh, but uh, but what oh, I was gonna say? Oh, sorry, uh, I, I'm not, no, I'm not done. As the, they make a, a sequel and it's really similar to the original. They don't change it up too much. 
And it's not until you get to the third film where they've either run out of ideas, so they uh, they usually run out of ideas, so they either need to make it even bigger and bigger to the point where it's kind of absurd now, uh-huh. or they need like some sort of new twist to it. Yeah, like they well, need a, a, new, a new character or... twist, or they'll change yeah. the setting, or yeah, yeah, they'll start adding magic Smokey to it. Smokey is the bandit. So yeah, by the time you get to the third, the third films in series tend to be kind of uh, weakest or strangest. Yeah. Uh, whether or not they're strong or weak. Um, that used to be the case. I don't yeah, think it's that's, necessarily it's not the pa- Well, it's not the pattern anymore because now they're planning out movies like TV series and like yeah. in each individual episode. So they don't... The pattern has been changed. Yeah. Well, anyway, that um, is it for Critically Acclaimed's We've Got Mail podcast this week. Thank you. I almost said it. Uh, I managed to save it, but then I called attention to it. So there you go. Anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. We're sorry we didn't get to your letter. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once uh-huh. again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Yeah, box? You can send us a physical letter of Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and, um, yeah, there's other mm-hmm. other stuff that's happening, we're, I guess. Just if, if you uh, sort of browse around on our Patreon, you'll get to see all of our yeah. other podcasts. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We talked about a lot of those shows today, but there's even more on there. We just dropped a new episode of uh, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're currently in the 1940s on mm-hmm. that. Um, and, um, and, and, uh, uh, oh, and, and, uh, and The Fish. I... Uh, Coming soon for Christmas, uh, I have another radio drama coming. Yes! So finally! I've, I've, I've written it, I, I have an actor uh, who's going to record it, and I just need to yeah. get, get the recording and mix yeah. it together, the, and, and we're going to have a, a, a Christmas special for this Christmas. Amazing. COVID kind of derailed uh, yeah. Whitney's ability to make uh, radio dramas, yeah, I, I got, and that's a I bummer, got, but he does, you, if you on the Patreon, you and the $20 level, you do get them for free, yeah. and if you want to listen to them... Uh, anyway, you can always contact him on social media, and you can Venmo him a couple of bucks and yeah. figure it out. I don't know what the, I forget what the rate is. I I, I ask for ten. Uh, if you want to buy all three, you can get them all all three for twenty five. Um, yeah, yeah. Just contact me on the Twitter or on. I'm also on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you can find me. Uh, yeah, just send me a direct message. I can Venmo you, or you can Venmo me. Right. I can mail it to you. And me and my partner M. Lopez da Silva. We have our own side hustle. We have Salt Cat Soap. It's our Etsy store. Mm-hmm. Salt Cat Soap is all one word. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We make and sell designer soaps mm. uh, that are all little art projects in and of themselves. Uh, we have some new stuff coming out uh, for October, but until then, we do have a sale mm. going on on uh, some of our Halloween stock and some of our other mm. um, nice gift-giving stock as well. So head on over to our Etsy store. You can find the link on our social media. It's all Cat Soap on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's all there. And... Um, Thank you, everybody, who's already bought some soap. We've had some really wonderful reviews, and the sh- the store is pretty dang successful, actually, mm-hmm. for our first year at, at Etsy. So that just means a lot to us. So thank mm-hmm. you, everybody, for helping out. Um, that is it for We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody. Hope you have a great week. Stay safe and sane. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Mm-hmm.